Welcome to the Mediate.com podcast with Veronica Kramer. Well, hey there, and thanks for joining me for another great episode. And today I am excited because we are going to talk about a couple really interesting topics. We're going to talk about negotiation ethics, international dispute resolution processes, and online mediation. And I am so excited for today's guest. Today's guest is Carrie Mankel Meadow. And Carrie is a distinguished professor of law and political science at the University of California, Irvine, and A.B. Chettle, Jr. Professor of Law, Dispute Resolution, and Civil Procedure Emerita at Georgetown University Law Center. She is one of the founders of the modern legal dispute resolution field and has been teaching negotiation, mediation, and related subjects for over 35 years. She has published over 15 books and 200 articles in the field. She was the first recipient of the American Bar Association's Award for Scholarly Excellence in Dispute Resolution in 2011. In February 2018, she was awarded the American Bar Foundation's Award for Outstanding Scholar. Carrie has taught law and dispute resolution to diplomats, lawyers, law students, mediators, government officials, and ordinary citizens in 26 countries and on seven continents, which, yes, I also understand includes Antarctica. So I'm definitely going to ask about that. And she has mediated and arbitrated hundreds of disputes in the United States, including commercial, arts, education cases, as well as many general civil litigation matters. She's mediated and arbitrated cases outside of the United States as well. And I want to add, Carrie will publish a book called Very Short Introduction to Negotiation, uh, which will be published by Oxford University Press and will come out in this September, September 2022. So with that, hey, Carrie, welcome to the Mediate.com podcast and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I've been a long reader of Mediate.com, so happy to contribute. Very cool. And I'm super excited. And first, I just want to kick things off. So tell me about um, your experience teaching in Antarctica. Well, I've taught mediation and ethics and negotiation on all the other continents. And about six years ago, I took a trip to Antarctica, where there were a lot of scientists on board lecturing on a whole lot of scientific subjects. And when a very distinguished uh, diplomat heard that I was on board, he asked me to do a little lecturing and informal teaching of mediation for the very distinguished crowd that was on board. So now I get to say I've taught on all seven continents. We actually did um, touch land. We weren't just on the boat. We actually uh, went with ice picks and met the penguins and we were on land and at some of the set, uh, stations on Antarctica. One of the best trips I ever took in my life. And I noticed that the penguins tend to live relatively peacefully. <laughs> yeah, that had to have been amazing. I mean, gosh, that I'm mean, talk about like a bucket list experience. That's to, that's on my bucket list. So it's that's a, awesome. It's a good one. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, hey, let's get started with mm -hmm. negotiation expertise and ethics for mediators. And so I thought maybe the first thing I thought would be interesting to talk about. So I had a chance to read the materials that you sent to me prior to our conversation. And thank you so much for that. That was so helpful. And one of the things I was really curious about, so I read your chapter and I'm gonna uh, share the book in case anyone wants to check it out, but you have a chapter in a book called Evolution of a Field, Personal Histories and Conflict Resolution. And in it, I came across this description of mediation as a sensibility. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because I've, I've never heard mediation described like that before. Well, it's a great choice of a question because the term came up in my work with one of the editors of the book, Howard Gadlin, um, who I don't know if you've interviewed yet, but you should, who is a leading ombudsperson in our field, a psychologist by training. And he and I worked together both at UCLA in dispute resolution at the university. And then he was at the National Institutes of Health. And I did some training programs there too on conflict resolution. And Howard and I used to say, mediation is a sensibility, meaning an approach to human problem solving. How do I conceive of the other? Now, I'm a lawyer by training, so lawyers conceive of the other as someone to be defeated or beaten in some dispute or conflict. And a mediation sensibility says, who are the people involved in this conflict? And what are the possibilities of us coming out of this encounter with each other in mediation better off than we were before? 
So to put not to cue the phrase on it, how do we make lemonade, or I like to say lemon pie, um, out of lemons? And that's what a mediation sensibility is. It's an optimism. It's a sense that although we're in conflict or dispute, our job here is to try to solve the problem between the parties and if possible, make things better, not worse. Uh, may not be, I wanna say this early on, I'm not a fan of win-win. It doesn't mean we can solve all problems, but it's a sensibility or an approach or a conceptualization of what we're doing that is trying to make the problem better than it was before the parties came together. That makes sense. And that's really interesting. And it almost sounds like kind of looking at mediation as like the bigger picture beyond that discrete case, maybe like looking beyond just settlement. Exactly right. So um, my chapter in that book um, talks about my rootedness in um, uh, social justice and having been a civil rights lawyer and a poverty lawyer. And so I came to mediation as someone who was originally bringing class actions that just as you say, went beyond winning the particular case, but trying to take a look at what the larger legal issue was and where possible, the larger social issues. So conditions of prisons, um, welfare regulations, uh, employment settings, these were all things that yes, we had a case, we had a dispute between two people, but the loss, lawsuit was a vehicle uh, to try to help the parties, often government parties, but also private parties, think through other solutions. Um, and that's how I came to mediation. So that's why, yes, I have always had a perspective that yes, we're here to deal with the case before us, but mediation is an opportunity to dig deeper and see what else we can do. That makes sense. And, and so now I'm curious, you know, along with thinking about this approach to mediation, what also comes in hand or to mind is just ethics for mediators. And so, for example, so I'm in Ohio and in Ohio, there's no licensing of mediators, not, you know, so I happen to be an attorney and I had to graduate from law school and I had to pass a bar exam. And, you know, if I want to keep my license active, active status, I have to continue to take CLEs every two years, right? And so at least in Ohio, and I haven't done like a 50 state survey for mediators or anything to know about other states, but um, in Ohio, there's no licensing of mediators. Now, I know there's the model standards of conduct for mediators and some of you know, some various entities have adopted those standards. So when we think about, you know, mediators conducting a mediation ethically, if a mediator, you know, is in a state, in a location where there's no licensing, what, what's the teeth behind something like the model standards of conduct for mediators? Kind of what are your thoughts on that for ethics? Great question. Well, I'm sure most listeners will know there is virtually no state that I'm aware of that licenses mediators. So we're all in the same boat, whatever our professional training has been, whether as a mediator or in some other profession. Um, and there are the model standards of mediator conduct. These are informal, drafted by professional associations, um, the Association of Conflict Resolution, the American Bar Association, and the uh, American Arbitration Association. And I also chaired a very important commission for the um, Center for Public Resources, now the International Center for Conflict Prevention and Revolu Resolution in New York, uh, co-chaired when I was at Georgetown, and we promulgated standards of ethics for third-party neutrals, which included mediators and arbitrators. So what is the effect of those rules? And as you put it, absolutely none formally legally, unless some state legislature or professional body were to adopt those. So the model standards that you described, um, the ABA, the AAA, and ACR suggest that mediators use them. Mediators that are on panels of organizations, provider organizations that recommend mediators, I assume that applies to mediate.com, which uh, advertises, uh, lets mediators advertise on them. Uh, many professional associations require that if you go on the panel, that you agree to abide by those rules. So there's no teeth in the sense of no formal disciplinary proceedings the way professions might uh, excommunicate uh, a lawyer, disbar them, or take a degree or practice uh, credential away from a psychologist. But professional associations have been known to have ethics investigations and to remove people from their panels. 
Similarly for courts, I have been a court trainer for many federal courts and a few state courts. And when you go on a roster for a state or a federal court, often you have to agree to abide by the rules that have been promulgated by that body. And again, no formal discipline, but if someone complains about you, they can decide to take you off. Now, this is a really tricky little question to add, but you know, um, question, you know, it's an interesting legal question. If someone were to remove me from the Central District of California Federal Court Los Angeles roster as a mediator, do I have a due process right uh, to complain that I have a right to some kind of hearing? Because that's a government body taking me off a roster. Um, and so some people have complained about that, but at the moment, I'm actually not aware of any particular case that's come up that way. Um, I would say, to answer your question, this is really important, the most significant way to discipline ethics or to have discipline in our field of mediation is reputation. Because if the parties aren't happy with the mediator, they will try to complain to somebody, whether it's the court or whether it's one of these bodies, providers that puts them on lists. And all that needs to be known is that somebody complained about you and you probably won't get work again. Um, many, many years ago, um, Eleanor Holmes Norton, who's now the um, uh, district representative in Congress for, for the District of Columbia, was my predecessor at Georgetown and an old friend, wrote a wonderful piece <clears throat> arguing that negotiation ethics were also mostly policed, even though there is formal discipline in the legal profession, most of it is disciplined by reputation. If you have a reputation for being honest, for being fair, for asking the parties to do the same, you'll have a good reputation and people will use you again. And the minute you get accused or you actually engage in some bad behavior, um, it will get known. And I will just add, uh, if I can uh, plug another one of my colleagues, James Coben, uh, who's at Hamline, did a piece many years ago, a wonderful piece, collecting all of the legal cases that have been filed against mediators for malpractice or coercion or for doing something bad. Those cases are public. So if somebody sues their mediator, either for malpractice or they might sue because they don't want to adhere to the agreement that they um, said they agreed to in the mediation, they argue they were coerced, that behavior gets reported in the case. And so lawyers that have been the subject to lawsuits uh, will have serious reputation damage in a published opinion and probably on Google. Um, even some of our most renowned mediators, that is uh, people that have done major special mastering in big class action cases in federal courts, there've been complaints occasionally raised against them. And when the judges rule on those things, they get reported. Um, and the, the press, that's the other thing I have to say. If, if something's bad enough, the press will pick it up. So uh, behave yourself, everybody. Um, we'll talk about the, the um, details of the rules shortly, but the best, um, the best protection for good um, ethics is your reputation. Um, I, I teach ethics, I have for decades, and I always like to say, we used to say, how would your mother feel if, uh, about what you did at the end of the day? Um, then there was, how do you look yourself in the mirror at the end of the day? Well, now um, this gets into some of the tech stuff, right? Any mediator should ask themselves, what would I look like if somebody had been taping this whole proceeding by telephone or by computer or by Zoom uh, or by whatever? Because in essence, there's almost no privacy anymore. I, I know we're going to get into some of the confidentiality issues and we can tell people we're giving them confidentiality. But these days I tell every student or any professional I'm teaching mediation, what, what would you look like if there was a camera rolling in the room right now? And that's one of the best teeth that you can have to enforce ethical behavior. Yeah, that makes sense. And so now I kind of want to talk a little bit about uh, an example of, of kind of mediator ethics. And, and so what I did was I kind of came up with an old fashioned law school hypothetical. Great. <laughs> so uh, I've got a couple, and I'll kind of set the stage. So I've got sure. a couple different provisions that I'm gonna read from the model standards of conduct. And then I'll give you the fact pattern for my hypo and get your thoughts in terms of what a mediator can do ethically. Great, well reversal. I know, well, I know, well, right? Law professor gets put at the other end of the Socratic question. Go ahead. I know this is kind of fun. It's it's like it's been a while since my law school days, and I never thought I could I would be in this role. So this is kind of fun. All right. So, um, all right. If I look at 
So the modest standards of conduct for mediators and standard six, the quality of the process. So I'm going to quote standard six says a mediator should promote honesty and candor between and among all participants and a mediator shall not knowingly misrepresent any material fact or circumstance in the course of a mediation. However, if we look at standard five confidentiality subsection B. That one says, quote, a mediator who meets with any persons in private session during a mediation shall not convey directly or indirectly to any other person any information that was obtained during that private session without the consent of the disclosing person. All right, so now here's the hypothetical, and I'm sure that this is a situation that many, many mediators have encountered. So let's say you're the mediator and you are in caucus. You caucus with each side. And while you're in caucus with each side, you know, one side tells you, hey, here is the best offer that our side is planning to make during this mediation, but I don't want you to communicate that yet. Instead, communicate this lower offer because I want to see what they say. And then you go to the other room and you don't communicate the offer yet. And the other room says, hey, here is the bottom line that we are willing to accept just so that you're aware, but don't communicate that bottom line yet. Instead, we want you to communicate this higher settlement offer. So the question is, you know, given those two provisions of the model standards of conduct, what's a mediator to do ethically like can the mediator ethically withhold that information from each side great question three answers okay number one um and this um, i'm afraid to say uh applies maybe to attorney mediators differently than other mediators as any attorney mediator knows and who studied the model rules of professional conduct those examples that you gave are exceptions to the rule 4.1, which says a lawyer must always uh, act with candor to a third person. Uh, as I like to teach, what the rule giveth, the comments taketh away, because the comments to rule 4.1 say that generally accepted practices of negotiation acknowledge that people puff and that the bottom line, literally, it's in the comments, the bottom line, the least you will accept or the most you will offer is not generally regarded as something that is fact. It is your opinion about what you would take. And so um, the, the comment actually allows attorneys, now that's a separate question from what mediators can do, but under the model rules for lawyers, it allows attorneys very specifically not to be quote, I have scare quotes in my fingers here, uh, allows attorneys not to be totally truthful in that, in that moment. Nobody expects anybody to truthfully reveal, certainly at the beginning, what their bottom lines are. So that's the answer um, that I, I would give from a, from a practice perspective for mediator lawyers who know that rule. And it's just important for non-lawyers to know that because that's what attorneys will be doing to you. Even that person in the caucus that you described who said, mediator, this is my best offer. They may not be telling you the truth right in that moment because they know that they're going to exaggerate a little bit, either demand more or offer less because of the expected give and take. That's what the phrase generally accepted conventions means in the comments. That's number one. Number two, um, one of my mentors, Gary Friedman, who was a mediator many years ago and is mostly a family mediator, uses the non-caucus method of mediation. Uh, many of your listeners will know about that if they trained in Northern California, others will not. It is increasingly rare that mediators do that. It is my preferred method of practice, and I do that as long as I can, but I do a lot of complex class action and commercial uh, litigation cases in which the, the lawyers expect caucuses. But answer number two would be you won't get into that problem um, if you keep everybody in the room together so that um, you can just facilitate a negotiation and encourage them to be as truthful or not as they might otherwise be. A subset to question to answer two is um, you can be careful about your own representations by framing them in questions. You could say in a caucus when you go back, so what would you say about possibly accepting something like? That doesn't represent that you know what the other side has told you. You're just floating a bunch of trial balloons in the caucus without making any representations about what was said to you. Um, and that's um, a second answer. 
Um, the third answer is um, not in the rules, generally accepted conventions of mediation. What you've done is a very good literal reading of the rules. Um, I venture to guess there is virtually no mediation list mediator listening to this podcast that hasn't engaged in the kind of behavior that you're talking about. That is, they know what they think the other side might take, but they don't want to offer it all right away because there's this cultural expectation that we're going to bargain and haggle a little bit in the mediation. And the mediator's trying to add value to the settlement or, the, or to whatever being agreed to. So the mediator wants some room to maneuver as well. So mediators aren't being entirely honest sometimes with the parties. Um, this is something that some have labeled, Jim, Jim Coben's one of those in his writings, uh, mediator manipulation. The mediator knows or senses where they think it's going to come out, but they're not going to press very honestly. Um, and so I want to just, you know, end this little segment by saying um, anyone who's mediated as long as I have, that's about 40 years now, it's tough because it's an art as well as a science. The science is what you just read me, the specific rules, and I need to know them. I need to know what the expectations are, what the limits are, what I can or can't do. But I've developed some wisdom over the years, and I hope a lot of our experienced mediators have. And we also know parties expect things. So I'd be surprised if any sophisticated lawyer that doesn't talk to parties would actually expect the mediator to be absolutely, totally frank in caucus number one. You know, here's what I think they'll do. What do you feel about that? It's because we, we have become acculturated to this process that our job is to be a go-between, to get a sense of what the parties like or want or think they can do. And then we try to bring them together in a skillful process. Um, I fully acknowledge that this is problematic because I'm speaking to you as someone who has operated in good faith all of these years and your earlier question, so what's the teeth if someone is lying and manipulating the parties um, what do we do? And I know every mediator does. Um, I, I've been showing a videotape many professors have of a very successful mediation for 25 years. It was made by CPR a long time ago. And the very skillful nationally renowned mediator, I won't name him, in that tape um, does exactly what you're talking about. He offers at the end of a very long multi-day mediation, he offers one party a little bit less than he knows the other party would ultimately pay but they've been working for so long that the party says, phew, oh, we're finally getting there and they accept it. Um, and the teaching moment in my classes and in training, just as you've asked me, did that mediator do something wrong, unethical, by not offering the full value of the offer? And the answer, it's a great class discussion, but one of the answers and the answer given by the mediator himself is, it's not wrong because it makes the other party um, committed to the agreement because they didn't have to give it all up. And they know that the mediator helped them to save a little bit, in this case, money, to help the party save a little bit of money and also to save a lot of face. So the mediator is not only getting a, uh, a settlement term, but the mediator is protecting the agreement also. Um, it looks to, especially to students that have never seen a mediation before, they see it as what you're describing here, lack of candor, manipulation. But the truth is, in the end, both of the parties know that they've made a deal. It, neither of them has gotten 100% what they want. That's why I say not win-win. Neither party's gotten 100%, but they've gotten enough. And the mediator has done the work of getting them to the table and agreeing. Um, so it's a, it's a tricky business. As I say, it's an art and it should be conducted truthfully and good faith, but it's not simply a matter of black and white um, truth um, or falsity. There, there's, there is some uh, in between there. And that, that little in between, the, the, the gooey stuff is what makes the agreement. Yeah, and, and I guess like you mentioned too, I mean, throughout a mediation process, um, more information is being revealed that might change one side's assessment one way or another that could impact, you know, what the offer looks like. So yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, you know, now if we think about mediator competence, you know, I think back on my 
basic mediation training and you learn about things like avoiding conflicts of interest and um, maintaining confidentiality and things like that, you know, what, what does it mean now that we've talked about kind of the model standards of conduct and we went through this hypothetical, what does it mean to be a competent mediator, knowing that, you know, mediation is assisted negotiation and there's different styles of mediation. So what does a competent mediator look like? Fabulous question. So if I may um, reference another uh, long friend of mediate.com, uh, Christopher Honeyman, who was a uh, labor mediator in Wisconsin for several decades, uh, and now has his own convener conflict resolution consulting firm. Many years ago, he and I worked together uh, with the Law and Society Association, which does empirical research to try to develop competency tests. And Chris had a very ambitious plan. He had a number of us that were experienced mediators uh, creating scenarios, watching scenarios of trainees and rating them so that we would, could really try to develop you know, I had to take a bar exam, you had to take a bar exam. Um, people have developed tests to quantify legal knowledge. And Chris's idea was that we could quantify uh, through some exams, some paper and pencil exams, you know, given a fact situation like you just gave me, what would you do, A, B, C, or D? And then we would mark them wrong or right. And then there was an experiential component. We would then watch you mediate and there'd be a group of raters, whether three or five, raters, R-A-T-E-R-S, um, that would give you a number. Um, and from that, we would determine your competency. And Chris wanted some states, whether to license or not, to begin to develop standards for competency. So another example of that, when I trained in the Northern District of California Federal Court in San Francisco, also quite a long time ago now, we used a system like that. We invited lawyers with a lot of experience to come in and be trained to be mediators in federal courts, complicated cases. And we had something like 80 hours of training in which they heard materials, they watched us, I had co-trainers, they watched demonstrations. So we teachers have a great mantra, see one, do one, teach one. So they would see us do one, then we would have them do one and we would rate them just as I described to you. We had a scale of one to five, five was great, four was very good, three was average, two was more work and one, you probably shouldn't be put on the court um, panel for some reason or other. Um, and then after we rated them, we had them take a look at us and, and rate us so that they would learn to see what good interventions were. What's a competent mediator? A competent mediator is one who does appropriate interventions. Interventions that move the mediation in a positive direction, don't make it worse. Now, sometimes you're gonna have conflict and there is gonna be some tough moments but a competent mediator knows how to make the right interventions. And more often than not, that means asking questions and listening rather than yakking like I'm doing now and, and telling the parties things, pulling, pulling ideas and agreements and conversation and curiosity and questions out of the parties rather than suggesting it. Um, so a third measure of competency, an organization in Europe um, called the International Mediation Institute, IMI, they have a web page, and they began a process about 15 years ago of doing what you just asked. They were trying to certify mediators as being competent mediators, mostly, mostly in big commercial cases, transborder. That's what they that was their market, transborder mediation. And so they tried to develop models um, of what I've described that you had to do their training, you had to be observed, um, you had to apprentice and go along with somebody else for a while before you could do it. And then they added a very interesting third dimension, since it was, we're getting into what are some of these other topics, international mediation. They actually developed models for international competence. Do you have cultural competence? Can you mediate in different cultures? And I found that process, I was an advisor to it, a very interesting one, because in the United States, we all need cultural competence. It doesn't have to be transborder. Um, in any court setting, uh, in a familial setting, in any setting, it's rare these days for everybody in the dispute to be in the same culture. So that's something I'm very sensitive to. How do I know that a mediator has competence not only to do all those things that you learned in your training rubric, you know, opening statement, 
developing an agenda, facilitating a negotiation, brainstorming and creating ideas, reaching an agreement. Those are kind of the you know, nitty gritty training aspects. But how do I know that a mediator can really listen and hear people from different cultures? And to measure things like, in this culture, women don't get to speak very much. So they feel silent. So what do I need to do to be sure that the woman's in the room? In this culture, it's deeply hierarchical. There might be too much deference, not just to men, but to older people. As I get older, that would be nice. I'd like some deference. Um, I don't get it much because I'm a, I'm a woman. So you know, the woman cancels out the old. Um, and uh, a competent mediator should be sensitive to those things. Um, you mentioned it's fine. I just wrote a chapter on, uh, for a book that's coming out on um, intercultural mediation. And it's an attempt to both specify what a good intercultural mediator is, how can we look at it, and to make people just sensitive to the question. Whatever training you've had, you can't just plop it onto any dispute. There's no one, to, we have our tools, we have our techniques, but you can't just plop some same template on any kind of dispute. Um, so I guess I'm up to four or five now. The main recent way, way, main way to measure, there's two main ways to measure it, um, sadly, and they're both observational. Um, someone needs to look at you and that someone could either be your teacher, in my case, when I teach and train, um, but more importantly, it's the parties. Um, parties can be hurt by incompetent mediators who do harm, that is make the conflict worse, or who preside, I call, I use the word preside, a mediator who presides over an agreement, that's not fair. So from an ethical perspective, I and a couple of other mediators have always taken a somewhat controversial position. I feel responsible in some way for the mediation agreements that are signed at my table, or I guess these days on my screen. Um, and so I feel some ethical compunction to be sure that it's really fair. I wrote a book called What's Fair? Um, Ethics for Negotiators. And I feel that even more importantly in mediation. Um, so for me to be competent also means to be sure I really, really check with the party. We call that reality testing in our techniques. But is it fair to the parties? And am I sure it's not hurting anybody else, a child in a family case? Um, environmental settlements affect next generations. I'm always asking who else is gonna be affected by this? Uh, but as you said, throughout our whole conversation, there's no teeth to any of this. You know, the model standards say a mediator should be competent. Says who? Um, and as you've alluded to, and I've mentioned before, there are many different styles. I began as a totally facilitative, no caucus mediator, meaning come into my room, people, and I will help you talk to each other. And together we're gonna to brainstorm and come up with creative ideas and we're gonna solve this problem. I began that way a long time ago. Over the years, as more sophisticated parties and lawyers came to me, they said, well, mediator, what do you think? And so I got pulled into evaluative mediation before it even had a label, before Len Riskin even put a name on it, I was doing it. Um, and there to answer your competency question, I won't do it unless both parties agree. So I have a fairly lengthy retainer agreement now. If you wanna see my scars, it, co <laughs> it comes from you know, 30 years, 35 years of working as a mediator. So every time a new issue comes up, I put it in my retainer agreement and I say, you know, this is for private mediations, obviously. Courts have their own rules. Um, if you're gonna to come to me, here's what I promise you. I promise to be competent, ethical, disclose my conflicts of interest, check with you at every moment because a conflict could come up in the middle of the case when you mention somebody else. Um, and I, in return, I ask you to be candid, honest with me, um, and I'm going to ask you to write up a little document, I don't call it a brief, uh, a, a mediation plan uh, in which I'm asking you to think about how, you, and so it's pretty long these days, um, my retainer agreement. Some mediators are going in the other direction, writing less. But what that gives the, the parties and the clients is a template for what I think is competent. And if I depart from my, fortunately, no one's ever sued me. If I departed from my own promise, my own contract, they could say, but Mankle Meadow, you said in paragraph three that you weren't gonna do this. So it is a way to measure competency that the parties get to observe and they get to hold me to it. Um, so that's yeah. my measure. 
Yeah. And so that everyone's on, on the same stage or, or on the same page. And, um, you know, you mentioned cultural competency and that's a, that's a really great segue for international dispute resolution. You know, I'm curious, does mediation, is there consensus across the globe on what mediation is and what it isn't? I love that question. That one's got a simple answer. No. <laughs> N-O. So for listeners who don't know, um, you might interchangeably use the words mediation and conciliation. And here's a great way to describe my international experience. I've spent many years now, over 20 years, teaching in many Latin American countries, Central America, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, uh, Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay, Chile. Um, and in the beginning, I don't, I, I have Spanish, but it's not totally fluent. So I had translators often, and I would listen with my little earplugs on to hear what they were saying. And I said, oh my God. And that's when I started to learn Spanish more seriously. They would interchangeably use the word mediation and conciliation, totally different words. In Europe and most of South America, conciliation is a labor mediation process in which the third party neutral does make express suggestions. How about this term in the labor contract? How about this for child custody? And it, it has a, it's, it's uh, closer to a value of mediation, but in some countries under statutes, it has the force of, if you don't agree with the conciliator, you're really gonna be in trouble. So uh, some sanction will happen. So we think in, in the United States, conciliation sounds like this soft, nice, I'm gonna conciliate you, you're gonna hear each other. In fact, in many other countries, it has a much longer, deeper history in labor, and some of that is spilled over into mediation. Similarly, in very large commercial disputes or international investment disputes, mostly decided by arbitration, a lot of the commercial and international arbitrators then got into the mediation business. Uh, we could do a whole other podcast on that. I, I, I do arbitration too, and I've trained uh, people on lots of countries, and I find it very disturbing that both commercial arbitrators and a lot of retired judges go into mediation and see it as head knocking. You know, um, this is what you're gonna do. I'm a judge, I know how this is gonna come out. I'm an arbitrator, this is what I would decide. So I would say, we use this term mediation and there's many, many books now, comparative studies of mediation, mediation in Europe. I've taught in Hong Kong, Singapore and China, mediation in Asia, much longer Confucian tradition. So there's a harmony culture in stereotypic terms. But more importantly, there was a communist tradition to mediation, Maoist mediation, which was you have a dispute, you come to us and the party official will tell you what you're going to do and you stay out of court. So that gives you a little flavor. Anyone who's interested will get to, I've written a lot about this. The term mediation, mediation, it's totally different in different cultures. Um, so just think of it this way. Um, so is um, so is litigation different in different cultures? Yeah, and that's actually um, you know leading right to my next question. So in the United States, when I think about mediation, I think about how it is largely connected to the litigated case. What is it like in other parts of the world? Is mediation largely connected to a pending court case, or do you see more mediation at sort of the pre-file stage? What have you yes. seen? Well, a couple of things to answer your question. One is um, in mediation is increasingly being used in big mergers and acquisitions, for example, term sheets, big transactions. Um, as the parties come together to negotiate, um, I don't want to mention it because I'm not a fan of this, but you know, think about what's going on this morning, Twitter suing Elon Musk to make him go forward with his offer to buy Twitter. Um, that will be enormous litigation. Um, and I don't think of you know, Elon Musk, probably not someone likely to go into me, but you never know. Um, the, um, the big uh, Microsoft antitrust case went into mediation for a while, either pre and during and after litigation. So mediation uh, is used in a lot of big humongous situations before they get to court, during court, and surprising to a lot of people, after court. That is, there can be a judgment and then the parties decide to come together and try once again before anybody tries to execute on the judgment. Um, the other big area that I've worked in, of course, is diplomatic mediation. And in international relations, I've done a lot of work in the Middle East 
um, both when I was in Washington at relatively high levels uh, with diplomats trying to once again solve a Middle East problem. But my favorite work really was on the ground work with Israelis and Palestinians who were trying to formulate ways to live together even before um, the governments come to some agreement. And I think there's a really interesting growing movement um, in Europe in particular, a little bit in Asia too, to use mediation outside of the court structure altogether. Um, and I'll just add, you know, um, many American kids have learned to use their words in elementary school. But um, some years ago, when I was honored to get an honorary doctorate in Belgium at the University of Leuven, uh, Leuven has made mediation a required course now. Um, I taught it there in 2019 for its uh, graduate law students. And the idea then, the students, students did this all on their own, they all adopted um, elementary and high schools. And so in a lot of countries, teaching kids how to have a mediated sensibility or consciousness as we began, I think is getting um, a lot more attention even than here. There was, a, there was a moment in the United States when Janet Reno was attorney general, when she was really pushing mediation training in the schools. And there's still some of it, ACR has been active in that, but it's kind of gotten lost in the current polarized environment we're in. And many other countries um, are teaching it in schools. So it's not just for lawyers, it's not just for litigation, it's for very big deals for transactional work. And it's extremely important in the diplomatic um, peace setting as well. Oh, yeah. And, you know, as you mentioned, kind of teaching mediation in schools, I mean, gosh, it's such a huge life skill. I mean, I have a six-year-old daughter and I try to teach her, you know, little little techniques and tips and you know, information related to mediation. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I completely understand. And so, you know, just to switch gears a little bit, because I know we have a few minutes left, I wanted to switch gears and talk about ODR and get your thoughts. So... I mean, I've previously mediated online in a former role. I did asynchronous mediation, more like small dollar disputes. Um, and I know, you know, especially with the pandemic, we've seen more and more mediations happen via video conference, for example. And so you think about just, um, you know, the, the increasing use of technology and mediation. And when I think about ODR, you know, I, I've heard phrases like access to justice and efficiency, but as with anything, you know, with every benefit, there's also some challenges. So can you talk to me about what some of the challenges are with ODR and the use of technology and mediation? Great question. Quickly. I mean, I have time, but um, <laughs> your listeners may not. So I was, I've been invited for years now to the international meeting of all the ODR professionals. And they used to call me to be on panels because I was a, um, unmitigated person-to-person -person mediator. And so before COVID happened, I was on these panels to say, here's what's missing. Um, interpersonal connection, um, eye contact, uh, the ability to fluidly move into different spaces and rooms, which you can now do on Zoom and, and look for other ideas. Um, and because I believed that I, I mediate disputes, not just to, to fix the dispute, but where possible to work on relationships between the parties especially in ongoing relations, but even in business relations, even in one-off, because if someone solves a problem one-off and they're angry at you, they're gonna keep hammering you um, now online and elsewhere reputationally. So I'm still trying to solve the whole problem. So ironically, um, slowly but slowly, I started to get converted to some uses. Here's some examples where it works, what you said. And I've written about this too. I've written about everything. I've written about this too. Um, access to justice. So I, 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 this sounds crazy. I buy a book a day from Amazon. I'm a big reader. And they've screwed up like anybody else. And these days, because I buy so much, and that clearly is an algorithm. Oh, here's Mankel Meadow complaining again. But since she spends $30 a day, if it's a little dispute under whatever, just refund the money. She doesn't even have to return the bad book. So they have turned out to be incredibly efficient, often at the expense, let me say, of their workers. There's a lot of books out there about what customer relations is like in these big companies. Um, they have quotas and what they have to do, and it's awful working conditions. So please don't hear me to, to be endorsing all of this. It's efficient. And for someone who can use it, it is amazing for those kinds of disputes. And I have used it for customer service all the time uh, these days, and it's totally efficient. And so rah-rah, small disputes, yes. Algorithms solve the problem. Also, um, I've called this um, getting to Yelp 
um, getting to yes, uh, obviously our great text and negotiation. But the other thing that online dispute resolution does, if you have a really bad dispute, put it on Yelp um, and make it a class action uh, without filing any papers. If enough people have had problems with a particular company, those reputational services actually operate like class actions and you get very quick service. It is a way of communicating with um, a producer, a manufacturer, even a government agency that's something going. I just this morning before we got on our uh, call here, I filled one out for my university that was supposed to be taking care of some tech problem and they asked for feedback and I gave it to them. You know, it, it took them much too long um, to solve a very simple problem, but so it was very quick. Uh, you know, the whole thing took three minutes and I hope it will lead to improved services. Dangers, okay? Dangers, uh, great film out there for those listening, British film. I, Daniel Blake, director Ken Loach, br brilliant British director. Uh, and it's about an elderly retired man um, who's trying to take care of all his uh, much more generous than ours government benefits. And in the course of the film, he befriends uh, a young woman who's on um, financial aid with children. And the two of them are trying to help each other. This is, you know, before COVID, go through computer systems where they have to apply for grants uh, of aid and then deal with social workers and everybody else. And it's a fabulous film because it shows all you lawyers listening out there, we will be defunct. The key aid here is not a social worker. It is the librarian in the public library who helps these people to get through their computer illiteracy. One, because of um, being older and not being able to see or manipulate fingers anymore. Uh, and the other from not having had enough um, digital education to understand how to use all these platforms. I'm getting close to that myself, even though I was the first generation uh, to be on computers. So clearly there's a digital divide, aging, language, uh, facility with all this new technology that's very problematic in person-to-person -person disputes. In very big disputes with lawyers, uh, you know, the good thing about COVID is all my fancy mediator arbitrator friends who used to travel the world, they're all doing it from home. So they've been taking me to lunch uh, when they can and, you know, talking about their cases. And I will just say there've been a lot of converts. No travel, um, flexibility, ability, if you're up to do an international mediation at two o'clock in the morning for some and 10 o'clock in the morning for others. So the flexibility is amazing. Timeouts. And I have had it reported to me, I haven't experienced it in a way less anger because people aren't in the room together. They're not even in any room together. Um, so they, they don't flame out as much. Uh, my own experience is different. And that is um, early on in the use of email, I experienced a lot of flame mail when because people were not looking at each other, they felt perfectly free to say whatever they want. So I have to say in conclusion that um, when uh, people may not know this, when the cave paintings were discovered and we learned about technology and art and what human beings make of the devices and tools they come up with, they were used to tell people where the animals were to go hunt. They were also used for early pornography in case anybody didn't know that. So tech is tech, whether it's um, simple tech or complicated tech, I'm no longer a total critic. Um, I am what I do best. And that is, um, I say, it depends. Some of it has increased access to justice for some matters. Um, and it really does, look at us, you know, facilitates or listen to us communication um, so that people can listen to this whenever they feel like it. Um, so it is really a marvel. And that's the good part that's come out of this. But I'm still an old fashioned girl who likes um, where possible the human connection. I think that's the beauty of mediation when it works. So um, I say, if it's working for you as a party, a lawyer, a mediator, a professional, go ahead. I still prefer and hope and look forward to being back in person for as many as I can myself. So would it be fair to say your take is use the technology for its particular strengths, use it to support what you're doing, but not necessarily replace like in-person means of resolving. Absolutely. And quickly, I might say there was a wonderful platform in Holland, in the Netherlands, 
um, uh, it's it's been taken down and is being restructured. But it was a hybrid before COVID. It was a hybrid system for domestic relations. That is, parties could come on, and if they were getting along well, they'd use their diaries to plot their custody sharing arrangements. If they wanted to see a counselor. They could either do it um, on Zoom or some Zoom equivalent and talk to somebody, or they could use the platform to search through lists of social workers and psychologists and school people, professionals to help them. And as I saw at Demetra, Colin was involved in this. So Colin, Colin Rule out there, if you're listening, you know about this Recviser uh, in the Netherlands. The structure and the model was terrific. It didn't get all the buy-in that everybody hoped. Um, and, I hope, and I know there are efforts uh, in Canada, in the Netherlands, in Australia, there is more development going on on some of these platforms. That to me was a model, it was hybrid. It allowed parties that were sophisticated enough to use the technology to make choices about what they were going to do online and what they needed to do. Um, and I'll just add one of my dear friends in England who's a mediation teacher and practitioner, Maria Moscati, she works a lot with children and uh, children in same-sex couples divorcing uh, for levels of complexity. And, and online stuff is great because she's actually written a children's book so kids can look at pictures and, and do things, you know, while their parents are over on another screen trying to work things out. And um, she's done this wonderful little illustration of, you know, what's happening to us and, and kids can actually see it. And it also makes use of, you know, this kind of stuff, multi-platformed, multi-faceted ways. And so there's, there's still a lot to be invented and done with this stuff um, that I think is very promising. Very cool. Well, Carrie, this has been such a great conversation. I feel like I had the opportunity to be a student in one of your classes. So I have really appreciated this. It's been my pleasure. It's been great talking to you. If there's any listeners who want to learn more about your work or connect with you, how can they do so? Uh, well, they could email me cmeadow@law.uci.edu. And if you go to the University of California Irvine faculty page, I have a page and my whole bibliography is on there, my whole CV. So you can take a look at everything that I've written. Um, it's much too much for anybody to read. It's much too much for anybody to have written. Um, and the good news is, you know, things change. So I'm still writing, uh, but that's the best way to get in touch or to read some more. Well, very cool. Well, hey, thank you so much again for being on the Mediate.com podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Be well, everyone, and stay well. All right, friends. Well, this wraps up another great episode. I'll talk to you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com's programs and content, please visit our website at www.mediate.com.